Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Hi everyone. Um, I just wanted to pop a quick note here before we dive into this chat with the lovely Adam, uh, just to say that this episode does contain some explicit content, including quite a detailed account of depression leading to a suicide attempt. Um, so please, if you don't feel comfortable or are perhaps ready to engage with content of this nature, um, this episode might not be for you right now. That being said, I hope that those of you who do listen are able to take something away from this conversation and of course feel free to reach out to either Adam or myself on social media if you have any comments about the episode. Today I am joined by mindset coach from the A-Game consultancy, Adam Smith. Adam spent the majority of his 20s in the north of England working in hospitality at some of the most prestigious bars in the north. His decade consisted of living in various cities, travelling for four months, having two long-term relationships, being a best man twice, and by his late 20s he was nationally recognised in the bar that he managed. Adam's 20s were adventurous and adrenaline fueled, but like many of us, not without adversity. Adam also attended over 15 funerals throughout the course of the decade and after a time struggling himself, attempted to commit suicide. 18 months ago, Adam decided a change was needed. He left the only career he knew in hospitality and started up the A-Game consultancy with two other well-being professionals, both also conveniently called Adam, and is now attempting to be the man he always knew he could be, driven by a desire to help others avoid the same pain he experienced. Adam's honesty, vulnerability and empathy when discussing topics like mental health and suicide contributes to why he is widely considered such a profound and effective mindset coach. In his words, my 20s were a balance of crying myself to sleep and laughing until my cheeks hurt. I look back with compassion, understanding, regret, humour, and so, so much more. Adam, welcome to 20 Not Something. Thank you for having me here. It's great to be here. Good, I'm glad. So as I mentioned, this mini-series is all about focusing on the strides that we take in order to get to where we want to be and Mm. finding that balance between focusing on the destination point somewhere in the future, but also recognising that placing happiness and success that far ahead can often be quite damaging for our present. And so with that in mind, I just wanted to kick things off by asking you that when you were looking into your own uh, 20s decade, did you have any idea of of where you wanted to be by the end? And if so, can you recall what that sort of looked like? Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for having me here. Uh, That was an amazing intro. I was like, right, I'm done now. That's great. I can leave. Um, Now the... um, I always knew from a young age that um, I'd live life on my own terms and that I would be my version of what success is because success really is completely um, down to the interpretation of the individual, in my opinion. And, you know, who's to say what success is? If that's a bus driver, if that's the owner of the bus company, if that's middle management in the bus company, they all might have a a vastly different blueprint for what their interpretation of success looks like. And, I always knew that um, I'd have a bit of a a problem with authority in some capacity, not to say that um, I was uh, difficult all the time because I wasn't, but I like to challenge authority quite often. I knew that 
in many ways of the world's best employee in other ways I was the most challenging so <laughs> I always knew that I wanted to work on my own terms I'd seen it from a young age my dad had his own plumbing and heating business and the only person he had to answer to was his customers so I wanted to do something similar so I didn't know necessarily what it was I knew that I wanted to work with people I knew that I wanted to impact millions of people's of lives and I knew that I wanted to make a change to the world so and leave my stamp on the world. I want to leave a legacy. I don't just want to leave, you know, um, I'm not bothered about fame and whatever. I want to leave a legacy behind as much as I possibly can. And in order to do that, I need to change people's lives as well as my own. Mm. And do you think that mentality of, of craving a legacy has spurred you on to get what you want or, or held you back? Because that's quite a big claim you know that's all what we want when we when we die isn't it is to look back and be like i touched so many people's lives or i'm i had an impact i i meant yeah you know, i mattered um so has that yeah has that spurred you on or has there ever been a chance where that's sort of withheld you from getting that oh both massively yeah it's it's what gets me out of bed uh you know, I wake up at 5.59 every morning, not 6, because I want to get up at that little bit in the uh, the 5am club where everyone talks about. Do you about. snooze your alarm? No, no, straight up. Uh-huh. I, uh, yeah, I used to, but the, the snooze button was, you know, some people in health and fitness and whatever remit always refer to it as like the, the lose button or, um, <laughs> you know, whatever. And it, it, I get it, but you could, people can do what they want. It doesn't matter to me yeah. if you hit your snooze button or not. I don't really care. It doesn't impact my life at all. So <laughs> um, I, I personally don't because otherwise I'd wake up and it'd be half past nine and I'd be like, what the hell happened? So <laughs> um, no, it's um, it hundred percent it, it is the reason why I get out of bed and I drive myself forwards to, in order to, be better than I was yesterday and that might sound quite corny to some people but the only competition is you you want to be one percent better than you were yesterday whether that's with running whether that's with your business whether that's with your partner your body whatever for me progress equals happiness we're only truly fulfilled as people when we're making that progress even if it is little by little every single day and the the aspiration of you know, it's like I always use the analogy of an actor. If you want to become an actor, don't just think Oscars because that's going to be very intimidating and very overwhelming. And you're going to think, oh my God, have the, the visualization and the ambition to get there. Absolutely. Mm. But don't become so consumed by it that it actually puts you off from taking action every single day. So rather than thinking Oscars, think local acting school, think what books can I read? What videos can I watch? Which actors do I admire and what are their methods? And you can break it down into small bite-sized chunks in order to build momentum. Once you start building momentum, then you're unstoppable. It's like that big snowball rolling down the hill. It just keeps going and going and going. Mm-hmm. It can also work in the negative though, momentum, you know, and this is where a lot of people come very stuck and they become very overwhelmed. And this is where procrastination tends to kick in because, you know, if you, if you can't focus on one project and you haven't got full clarity over what it is that you want to achieve, you're never going to get there. So you have to have full clarity on what the end desired end outcome is. You're not always in control of it, obviously, but what's your desired end outcome? Well, it might be uh, the big house, the Ferrari, the this, the, this, the, this, it might just be that you want to be able to run 5k. But if you start associating negative language towards your desired outcome, you're going to fail straight away. It's like when people say there's no good men or good women out there after a difficult breakup. Mm. It's like, you're, you're right. If that's your approach to it, you're right. There are, mm. you know, you're going to find everything wrong with every man and every woman and whatever. So it's important to 
have the power of visualization, understand what your desired end outcome is, break it down into bite-sized chunks, and then start taking massive action as soon as possible. Mm Because by taking that action, you're going to start to learn so much more about yourself as opposed to being put off by the past and, oh, but my teacher said, oh, but my mum said, oh, but the coach said. Instead, it's going to be like, they did say that. I understand why they've said that now, but I'm the architect of my own mind. I'm the architect of my own future. Mm -hmm. So I can take back that certainty and I can start implementing it. For sure. Yeah. And I think we forget how much, like, as you were saying, oh, my coach said this once or a parent said this once. And we manifest so much of our beliefs in our childhood. And I've only realized that in the last couple of years. And it does take time to go back and sort of think like, wow, how has that affected the way I feel about this and, and go and change it? And one of those things that I think sort of comes up in what you were just saying is around goal setting, because it's something that comes up quite a lot on this podcast. And I've had, you know, um, international rugby star come on here and say, I've never set any goals my entire life, but he played for England and was, you know, player of the year in 1996, whatever. And then I've got a CEO who comes on and says, oh, I set goals weekly or daily. Mm. And my biggest fear with goal setting was, as you said, I, I used to set these massive goals and then freak out because I just knew that I could never reach them. Um, but then the smaller ones, I would succeed and then feel like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because that was easy. And mm. so what advice would you give to 20-somethings who are trying to map out their way to what it is they want with regard to, with, with regard to goal setting? Yeah, I, I would always invite people to do the work necessary because dealing with your past isn't often peaceful, but it will bring you inner peace. There's a big difference. So, you know, you can dance around the garden all we want and say there's no weeds. Those weeds are going to take your garden. You have to get in there, you have to rip them out, and then you have to plant new seeds down in order to move forward, right? So um, more often than not, I would just say that it's about finding that harmony. I don't like using the word balance because balance insinuates you're fighting against something. Harmony is just you're here and you're set and everything's okay, right? So I'd always invite them to do the work. Go back and do the true work, whether that be with a therapist, with a coach, uh, with your actual parents if the issue is with them, whatever. You know, There's several different ways to do it. But doing that work is essential. And then just understanding that what doesn't challenge you will never change you. If you're stuck in your own your own head the whole time and not knowing what it is you want to achieve you're never ever going to get there so like I said it's almost reverting backwards a little bit to what I said previously which is just know what the desired end outcome is because if you don't know that you've got nothing to work towards but those little micro goals are going to always help you because there's no one recipe like you've just said there you've got international rugby players never set a goal in my life turn up throw the ball around get 100 grand a year or 200 grand a year whatever retire happy days you get other people that like from 5am till 10pm this is my schedule so just find what works for you because all the the gurus out there will tell you a million different things some will say sleep for four hours to be productive. Some will say like Matthew Walker, the sleep specialist who I'd always advise listening to over a guru <laughs> is um, you have to sleep eight hours in order to be productive, to recover, to ensure that your health is intact, etc. So there's a lot of noise out there as well. You don't want to become so confused by this. Yeah. And you know, if you want to sleep, sleep faster, if you want to sleep for eight hours, sleep faster and all this kind of rubbish. Um, so it can be quite difficult. What I would advise people to do is so do the work, 
then find something that's going to push you and then pick one speaker that resonates with you. This might be, I'd always go to Tony Robbins is my go-to. So Tony Robbins is my go-to. I'd have him. I'd have maybe Gary Vaynerchuk. I'd have Les Brown, Zig Ziglar, um, Dean Graciosi, people like this. But just pick one and study them for like 30 days to 60 days. Just watch their content. No one else, nothing else. Because you're going to get a lot of contradicting statements. If, you know, young salesmen, for example, that I've worked with previously will watch Jordan Belfort and they'll watch Grant Cardone, two vastly different approaches to selling. Mm -hmm. So you're going to become very confused. And naturally, the cookies in your phone on YouTube will go selling, 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 and then you'll get all this conflicting information. Oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed. Oh, my God, I'm going to procrastinate. What's the point? I'm a loser. I never deserved happiness, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So just pick one person and just study them. Pick one book and read that book seven or eight times. You really want to be able to get to that point until you can teach it. Until you can teach it, you don't know it. Mm. so it's all right you know again some of the gurus say consume a book a week but then you're just going to have loads of information that you're not necessarily actioning so this is just what worked for me anyway because again i started this year on that foot i did like Mm. eight books in two months and someone said oh what did you make of that i was like no idea (laughs) i can't remember a word of it (laughs) so what's the point Mm. and then um, there was one video that i watched i said would you rather read um, what was it? Thirty? Oh, I think it was like thirty-five books. Or would you rather read one book thirty-five times and master it? And that's like, I'd rather mm. do the latter, mm. just so then it's not about a um, you know pissing contest about I'm better than you or I know I've read more than you. It's just a case of going that book was incredible, and I'm going to show you every single element of it and why it impacted my life in this way. Mm. So yeah, those would be my key tips for it. If you're trying to find your path and not knowing how to start. I mean, no, that's great advice. Thank you for sharing it. I agree. There is so much, um, as you said, noise out there. And that's one thing which in, in this generation, we are so overwhelmed with information every single day. It's almost impossible to map out what we want because there's just so many options. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk actually a little bit more about your journey in terms of, obviously you were in hospitality for the majority of your twenties, which as anyone who's worked in hospitality will know is no easy ride. Um, so how did that sort of come to an end and, and what were the highlights of that industry for you? So many. I loved it. Um, I was in it from 18 to 32, so 14, well, 31 to 14 years nearly. My first general manager, who I you know, very much look up to even to this day as a bit of a mentor, really, he's called Declan McGurk, and he's actually the bar manager of the Savoy. Well, he was mm-hmm. um, at the American bar, so he left about six months ago now, or maybe longer. And uh, my bar manager was a guy called Tom Coates, who's now the brand director for Portobello Road Gin. So I had some of the most amazing people in the industry looking after me when I first started. And I did have no idea what I was doing. I was so bad. I just used to glass collect and stay away from serving drinks. You know, people would ask me for a B-52 and I'm, where's the bottle of B-52? You know, <laughs> I was just a complete idiot. So cause when I used to go out, it was pints and it was Jack Daniels and Coke. That was my exposure to alcohol, you know, as, as a young lad in Harrogate. So I had no idea about cocktails or shots or whatever, apart from tequila and Sambuca and stuff. So um, that was amazing. Worked my way up quite quickly through that. 
became head bartender, became bar manager of one of our other larger venues, um, became very frustrated quite quickly, actually, managing a certain team. It was a team of 70 people, and it was me versus them, basically. They just didn't care who's students, and I tried my hardest to turn it around, and the, the general manager above me wasn't really interested in changing anything either, so I was the problem and all the rest of it. So um, left there, dipped my toe in other things, knew that by 30, maybe 31, definitely, that my time was coming towards an end. And especially, you know, working down Court Lane in Leeds, it's, uh, you know, it's a beast. It'll chew you up and spit you out. It's a very famous street for people go, you know, it's probably the most famous street in, in Leeds. Definitely one of in the north of England for going and getting absolutely shit faced <laughs> and having a great time. So the people I met were amazing. The times I had were incredible when it was up here. But then the lows were hangovers, uh, come downs from drugs. Uh, one night stands leading to nothing, emptiness, loneliness, unsure whether people actually like you or they're just doing it because you're managing the busiest bar in town, you know, all mm. that kind of, all those kind of challenges. So, yeah, while some of the time you're looking around going, how on earth is this my job? This is the best thing ever. The next, Some of the next days you're thinking, I just need another drink because I, I need to numb this pain that I'm experiencing right now. You know, I mean, we were con- we were invited to um, drink with our guests as much as possible, like a rapport building exercise. But there'd be some Saturdays where I could drink over a bottle and a half of whiskey while still working and be functional. That's how bad it got. So, you know, um, but it was probably a couple of years before that was when I hit my version of rock bottom due to working 80 hour weeks in hospitality as well. So I wouldn't say it's a love hate relationship. I I did love it, but there are times that really shaped me to become the person I am today, which I'm actually quite grateful for. Mm. I mean, speaking of rock bottom in that note, you sent me, you obviously mentioned that you did attempt to commit suicide during your twenties. And I'm sure as a result of those feelings of loneliness and the substance abuse must've really really taken its toll and I recognize that that's an extremely personal topic so if it's too triggering to talk about then you know we don't need to go there but oh no not at all I'm an open book it's all good I just wondered if yeah it would be okay to talk a little bit about about that time and how that then I mean shaped the rest of your life as a result of of hitting rock bottom yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's an old phrase that Tony Robbins uses, which is life can either happen to you or life can happen for you. And a lot of the time when we get stuck in the victim mindset, it's why is this always happening to me and poor me and woe is me. Upon reflection, you know, the, the work that I've had to do around myself to heal is realize when it was justified to point the finger of blame and when it was, you know, the reality kicks in of going, that was me. Because we all have these moments in life where we're like, oh, God, that was me. And then others where we go, hey, that was me, right? I'm awesome. So mm-hmm. um, it was probably, I think, 2017, uh, maybe late 2016, and I was working stupid hours over Christmas time. And I don't say this to be cutesy. I, I genuinely didn't know what day it was. Like I was working from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. was like a was a good shift. And I don't really know how busy it was by what deposits and what bookings we had in the next day. 
you know, my relationship at the time was suffering because of it. Cause when I came home, I just wasn't present. I was always exhausted. I just wanted to tune out and go back to my teenage like self and play FIFA and just almost to just, I don't need any information. I just want to mm. sit and stare because you get all the crap from all the staff, you get all the crap from head office and you get all the customers screaming at you. Where's my buffet that was coming out at 7.15? Now it's 7.18. Do you know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. it was very, very difficult. So I took on way too much. had no idea how to process it. Talking about feelings and emotions wasn't on the agenda for me. You know, it was phrases like man up, toughen up, stop being a pussy, would get thrown about like it was nobody's business, especially in groups of men. And um, especially, you know, that was a lot of the the mask that I used to wear. And then I'd go home usually and study Tony Robbins and Eric Thomas and Les Brown and make notes. So I'm giving all all the big in in front of all the lads. And then you go home and you're like, no, actually, I love this sort of stuff. So I always knew I was wearing a mask the whole time um, throughout most of my life, actually, to be honest. So that was very challenging. And then fast forward a couple of weeks and I sat there with my area manager at the time. We didn't really get on. And I remember breaking down in tears in front of him and I was like, I'm exhausted. I'm stressed. I'm not sleeping. I'm anxious. I've got insomnia, you name it. So I went to the doctors to sign me off with stress, to sign me off with anxiety. Depression wasn't even coming into the equation at this point because I just said, no, you're just stressed and tired. I was like, right, okay. I had a big argument with my partner at the time. Um, She went away with some friends, came back. The relationship was ended in five minutes. And I was with her for like four years. So in reflection though, in fairness to her, she'd probably checked out of the relationship three months ago because I was doing nothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it sounds very callous to say that it was her that ended it in five minutes, but in reality, I don't really blame her either because it was called a breakup because it was broken, right? So I've never felt a pain like it. I've lost a lot of people in my life, but I've never really felt a pain like that because it was so unexpected. It was like someone just ran in, and stabbed me and then left. And I I was so confused. I was just sobbing on the kitchen floor, like what on earth has just happened anyway. So about a week or two later, my auntie had been ill for a number of months. She, you know, had um, quite aggressive cancer and she ended up passing away. And then a week after that, a family friend just had a heart attack in the supermarket. And we're like, out of nowhere, like late 50s. So I'd lost two family members, signed off from work, and my partner just left me. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Anyway, so <clears throat> a few weeks later, I got my dream job. It's my favorite bar in the world. And I got my job. I was like, this is amazing. Now, late nights, cocktail bar, whatever. Um, you know, I remember just pointless one night stands um, on a weekend. And again, some people might listen, oh, poor you. It must have been really hard. It's like, well, yeah, because I was trying to chase a void that was left by my ex-partner. Mm. And it was just connection, connection, connection. There was no love. There was no love anywhere to be seen. It was just connection, connection, um, which also comes with a lot of rejection, which also comes with labels. Um, Arsehole being one of them, <laughs> player, dickhead, you know, <laughs> all the all the good labels you can imagine mm-hmm. that were associated with that. And I, I just, I, I looked at myself one day, I was like, what on earth have I become? Like, who do you think you are? This is not you. I'm the relationship guy. I'm the the nice guy, this, this is not who I am. And, Mm. you know, again, this is just a mask. So I started going to therapy. The therapy itself was 
Pleasant, who's a really nice guy, who was younger than me, um, German guy, lovely bloke, but I don't know if it was his approach or if it was just therapy in general. I felt like I don't need this because I just kept reliving the same pain. And all I kept talking about was my ex and the job and whatever. And I was like, I'm very purpose driven. So I was like, I want to move forward. So like, no, but we have to go back. We have to do the work. Da, 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 da. And I just felt like I was getting nowhere. So I stopped doing therapy. I felt in a bit of a better space, got to about September time. And I remember sitting there like it was yesterday on my um, on my sofa. And I got a phone call from my best friend. And this is a guy that I've been best mates with for 10 years. And, uh, you know, we both our families get on really well. We live around the corner of each other as kids, etc. And he just rang me up and he was just like, Smithy, I went, yeah. He's like, my dad's died. I was like, uh, what? It's like my dad just had a heart attack and he's died. I don't know what to do. And I just froze again. I was just, I just remember like going back there now genuinely gives me uh, goosebumps. It's like, what, what do you mean? It's just, like, I just had a heart attack in the middle of the night and he's dead. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Oh shit, shit, shit. What do I do? I remember just breaking down in tears and I just, I, you know, I can't remember the exact words after what I said to him, but that was, you know, the rock bottom for me at the time. So, a few weeks passed. Obviously, it took a little bit longer because he died due to unforeseen circumstances. Went to the funeral. I remember looking round at the funeral, thinking, "Where is he?" I was that much in denial, thinking, "He needs, you know, why is he not here?" And uh, my friend's uh, older brother is, you know, when men were men, kind of thing. Big, tough Yorkshire lad, and boys don't cry and all that. And he was in bits, and that just, you know, sent me over the edge really because. I'd never seen him show any form of emotion other than sarcasm or humour and or be driven and whatever. I've never seen him process this kind of emotion before, which really hit me. So but I remember being at the wake, looking around at all this sorrow and just thinking about myself and I was thinking, I can't do this anymore. Like I don't want to be associated with any of this. I've had enough pain now. It has to end today. The pain has to stop today. So I must have drank eight or 10 pints of the wake. And because I was drinking so much at the time, no one had any idea that I was actually intoxicated or that it was hitting the sides because I was just drinking a bottle of whiskey most, you know, most weekends and what have you. So 10 beers is like nothing at this point. <clears throat> I remember stood at, being stood at the bar looking around and I just started sobbing. And the barman was like, you all right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I said to my friend, look, I'm so sorry. I can't explain why I need to go, but I need to go. I don't want to make this about me. And he just said, okay. And he hugged me and I left. And I remember walking from that thinking, you selfish bastard, how can you be leaving this funeral in this state? But I got back, I went home and I just sat on the toilet. And I was just like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I was like, right, I know where I can do it. I don't want to hang myself. I don't want anyone to find me in that state, but I don't really know how to, you know, what I'm going to overdose with. I'm just going to crash the car, but I'm going to crash it into something so I don't hurt anybody else. So I remember just um, saying bye to my mum, thinking this is the last time I'm going to see her. So I held back all these tears and I was just crying. I couldn't really see 20 yards in front of me because I was crying that much on the drive. And I picked the bridge. I was like, if I hit that at enough impact, it's going to kill me. So I waited for a little bit of a break in the road. I didn't want to cause anybody else any harm, obviously. 
So I'm pretty much drink driving at this point, plowing towards this bridge at like 100 miles an hour. And uh, I got a phone call and it just connected to, I must have pressed a button and it connected to my Bluetooth. Adam, Adam, Adam. I was like, yeah. And she said, oh, you've left your wallet here. Do you want me to drop it off? And it was just, there was just something that just went like that and just snapped out of it. And it was my mum. And I just slammed the brakes on and the car span out of control. And I remember just pulling into the lay-by and just sobbing. I mean, it was like someone poured five litres of water over my head. My shirt was just soaking wet through uh, with tears. And I must have sat there for I don't know how long. And then um, carried on back to Leeds. And I just thought, this is it. This is rock bottom. But there's an old phrase that rock bottom is a great foundation on which to build. Because Mm -hmm. I thought, I can't feel any worse. And the main thing I want people to take from this story is that I didn't want to die. I wanted my life at that time to end as I knew it. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest difference. I didn't want to die. I just wanted the pain to end. So <clears throat> when people can understand that, you know, I, I don't truly believe that really anyone wants to die. People that may be experiencing long-term illness, you know, and horrific things out there like motor neuron disease and what have you, they might just be so sick of being in their own body. And I can understand that from an intellectual perspective, but I don't believe anyone that's just living and breathing right now wants to truly end their life. I honestly just think they want the pain to end. Mm. There was a guy in Australia who jumped off the Sydney Harbour bridge and uh, he survived to tell the tale and he's an inspirational speaker now. And he said, you know, I regretted it as soon as I jumped because I knew that I had so much to live for. And I just started practicing gratitude in my mind straight away. I was like, I've got a mum that loves me. I've got a dad who loves me. I've got a brother. I've got a sister-in-law. I've got a nephew. I've got friends. You know, I've got my health. I've got, a, you know, I've got a job, blah, blah, blah. And I knew there'd be a long road back. But that was the day when I decided that everything has to change for me. And don't get me wrong, there's still been highs and lows since that moment. I've got to myself to such a point now where I've just conditioned my mind and put calluses on my mind that can't be broken now. Nothing's going to ever affect me the way that that did. Mm. And I've got the right support network around me to ensure that I can now thrive and not just survive in my life anymore. Wow. Adam, thank you so much for sharing that story. I, I mean, it's, it's, I'm so sorry that you had to go through all of that to realize you know all of the things that you have to be grateful for but also so thankful that you have because I know that you affect so many people's lives now as a result of that um one thing I did want to pick up on actually is throughout that your recount of that you mentioned quite a lot of the sort of the men in your life um not showing emotion or um how you know you were wearing a mask because it was all out with the lads and then it was you know, it was actually contradictory to how you're actually feeling. And, you know, there's so many statistics about how suicide, uh, you know, affects men four times more than it does women. And I just wondered whether you think that your experiences are as a result of the way that perhaps society depicts masculinity and and that would be a contributing factor to that struggle. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, I was, um, I had a fantastic upbringing, you know, like my, um, my parents were unbelievable and we've never really had the, myself and my dad have never really had that 
sort of emotional connection. It's like an arm rounder, all right, son kind of hug, you know, because his dad was the same and his dad was probably the same. And you see it with all that, that generation, really, because they go, oh, it's so different with the grandkids. It's like, yeah, because now they feel like they can, you know, for so long, it's just not been accepted. And I feel like a lot of people see it as a chance to do over with the grandkids, you know, because if you see my dad with the grandkids, it's like not a different person because he was always great with us <clears throat> and it's nothing against him whatsoever. But the environment at school, um, the environment, you know, at football, very much a football-led kind of community of it's um, casual sexism, casual racism, it's just accepted. And unfortunately, in some places, it's still very rife right now at local football. I manage a football team now and, you know, I do everything in my power that I can to rectify any conversations that are happening that I don't want to hear or be a part of. So, you know, if you weren't talking about pints and birds on a, on a Friday night, you don't, you don't talk about anything and nothing real. You know, if you talk about a breakup, oh, get over it, mate plenty more fish in the sea and it's like, okay, cool. That's about as far as the help went, you know, and I think the confusion with a lot of people, even to today, is you don't have to solve anything. Some people just want to tell you because they want to tell you. They just want to share. They don't need it fixing. You don't need mm -hmm. to put the cape on and save the day. Just listen without judgment and just ask more questions because then you'll get to the bottom of what's really going on. Like someone goes, oh, I don't know. I just don't think I can do it. Most people go, yeah, you can. Don't be so stupid. In reality, it might be the real answer is they don't think they can do it because from the suppressed emotion from the age of six-year-old where the father told them they couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. But we just go, don't be daft. You'll be fine. It's like, oh, cool. Didn't think of that one, right? So mm -hmm. it, it's 100%. Um, most people are a product of their environment. And you have to look at that in a circle. And if you're not inspired by your inner circle, you don't have a circle anymore. You've got a cage and you're trapped. And more often than not, when we're in a cage, we feel the need to fight our way out of it. But if you are in that cage right now, you can also just open the door. So it's about just releasing yourself from that as much as you possibly can. And, you know, I've got to do that. When I started my coaching business, I was heavily ridiculed by people that knew me as what their perception of me was. So I create empathy because I've always known who I am. And I feel like most people get confused by this to go, well, why are they supporting me? And well, because they know you as the idiot, as the person that went out on a weekend and got drunk every night. And now you're talking about being alcohol free. Now you're talking about meditation. Now you're talking about practicing gratitude. You can't possibly expect them to understand that. And they don't have to. You just need to know that you're on your own journey now. And that was part of the journey and it was a necessary part of the journey. The people I used to associate myself with were perfect for the 20s of going out and <clears throat> drinking and having a good time and whatever. But unfortunately now, it doesn't mean I'm better than them or they're worse than me or whatever. It just means that we're on different paths right now mm. and our goals don't align. Because I've got mates that are 35 married with two kids that still go out and do drugs every weekend. Mm. Do, do you do you did you find that you lost a lot of friendships uh through that that transition phase of obviously moving into the, the mindset um oh my god yeah <clears throat> yeah and yeah and you developed so many other relationships that you just never knew that you would in such an amazing way as well mm. so you know 
people that I've known since I was five years old setting up WhatsApp chats, ridiculing you. Really? You just like, yeah, and only one of them had the, uh, <coughs> had the sort of bollocks to really message you and go, I don't think this is right. Gosh. But uh, people were sending me my own Instagram posts, insulting me without realizing they'd sent it to me. You know, they'd be commenting on my stories and stuff and it'd come to me and you're like, all I'm trying to do is help people. Mm-hmm. If I'd set up like a, I don't know, a, um, a horrific business, I don't want to mention it, but obviously if I, if I set up something that was like absolutely disgusting, that was affecting people in a negative way, mm. I'd get it. Mm. But again, it's it, it, when you do so much work on yourself and you invest in this, this remit, you start to understand exactly why people do what they do. And it's a very challenging thing to know why people do what they do every day because then you have to create empathy always because as a coach, mm-hmm. you then have a decision to make. I know that it's a projection of their own insecurities. Don't get me wrong. Some of it, they will just disagree with me and that's cool as well. I don't know everything. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. some people listening to this are going to go, sure, mate, you don't know what you're talking about. That's cool. Like, that's absolutely fine. However, I do know a little bit about what I'm talking about. And also I've, I've studied it. I know, you know, all the subjects I talk about, I don't talk about anything that I don't know. Mm. I don't involve myself in those conversations. I'll always listen, but I never, I never chip in because mm. I don't see how I'm going to add any value to the conversation. So yeah, it was very challenging. Yeah. And you know, what's so awful about that is that everyone who's gone out on their own and, and, and created a project or or started a business or anything like that will know that the one thing that's so terrifying is what people are going to say about it and how people are going to treat you. And I have it with this podcast that I hate going on Instagram and doing the videos of myself being like, Oh guys, check out this episode. Cause I just have this vision in my head that some of my friends are on a WhatsApp group going, Oh lol, who does she Mm. think she is? Mm -hmm. So to actually have to experience that and see it and have those beliefs reaffirmed. You know, I just tell my brain that I'm chatting shit and no one's actually saying that. And if they are, they're not my friends, which of course you then had to do, but I can't even imagine how horrible that would have been to see that from people that, you know, you love and have been in your life forever slagging you off. Like it's horrible. I mean, every morning I used to just do this stupid thing. I just used to post my photo of uh, my breakfast with um, Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. I did it every day for like Mm. three or four months. And um, there was one girl who I've known for 10 years and she rang me, I remember it was on like a Tuesday morning from the motorway. I could hear all these cars and I was like, God, I can hardly hear what you're saying. So she got in a car, she said, I'm stood on the motorway and I want to throw myself in front of a car, Adam. I was like, what the fuck? So I was like, okay, I just had to calm myself down. I was like, you need to handle this and you need to do it right. You can't let this person down right now because this is, this is serious shit. So anyway, um, managed to calm her down, managed to focus on her thoughts, focus on her breath. She was going through a difficult time. Her boyfriend had just cheated on her. Uh, everyone knew about it. It was very, you know, much a gossip of leads and blah, blah, blah. Uh, lost a job due to COVID. Um, parents were kicking her out because of X, Y, and Z. So she's like, I just want to throw myself in front of one of these cars. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Talked her out of it. I was on the phone to her for nearly two hours. Mm-hmm. And then a week later, she sent me a photo of my own porridge going, who the fuck do you think he is? Look at him thinking it's like a cafe style now. Ha 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 to me. So I just responded going, 
oh dear. And she went, oh, uh, 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 you know, tried to cover it up with all this other bullshit. And I was like, you didn't mean to send this to me, did you? So no, I did. Honestly, I was, it was just a joke. And that, that was probably the toughest to experience. I was the one person in the world out of 8 billion people that she chose to ring in the moment she felt like she wanted to throw herself in front of a car. And then a week later, she started ridiculing me. And that was a very bitter pill to swallow. That took a lot of work. My auntie's a counsellor and I rang her and, you know, spoke to her about it at length. That that hurt big time because mm. it was, but then now looking back on it, I know why she did it because she was trying to hit one of her human needs of love and connection. And the other one is certainty by sending it to a friend and ridiculing me, it makes her feel better about herself even for five minutes. So it wasn't about me. It was that she was still in so much pain. So Mm. I moved past it and I forgive it. But out of everything, out of all the comments and the snidey remarks and the WhatsApp chats and the people forwarding on my story to me and whatever, that was, that was the most challenging. Then she had the nerve to block me on everything. You know, it's it's crazy. But I also heard a week after that that she was mortified and that's the reason why she blocked me because she was so embarrassed. So, yeah, that was tough. Wow. I mean, it's... I can't believe that. I can't believe that anyone would be so... I, I, yeah, wow. Um, I'm so gutted that we're nearly out of time, but I guess just as a round-off, I mean, you've been so so brilliant to have on in terms of just being so open and honest and vulnerable so thank you so much but um in terms of circulating it back to to where you are now and what you're doing now are you where you thought you would be and are you proud of the decade that you've had oh good question um yeah yeah i'm i'm I'm, where I th- I'm not where I thought I would be, but in such a beautiful way. Because when I was at my lowest point, if you'd have said to me, you're going to be helping people with this problem, you're going to be running your own business with two of your best mates, impacting God knows how many people's lives in the future, I would have called you a liar. Not because I didn't, not because I didn't ever believe in myself, but in that particular moment, I thought, no chance. So I do look back on the 20-year-old me pluses with compassion, with empathy. I do understand why I did what I did. It was always in order to try fit in without the fear of losing that love and connection and being ostracized from those those circles. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of where I'm at right now. And this, you know, this is genuinely only the beginning. You know, I've got big aspirations. I've got big goals. I want to be on stages inspiring millions of people because no one should ever go through the the pain and suffering that I did without the right help, without the right support. And if I can do that for even just one person, then I've done my job. 
Okay, we're going to play a really quick game at the end. So this is called awesome. Millennial Millennial Minesweeper. And I think you'll love it because, as you know, we've talked about a lot of entrepreneurs and stuff. And this is a, a quotes game. Um, so I'm basically going to read out different quotes that I found or read um, or that have been said. And uh, you've got to tell me whether you agree with them or not. Awesome. Let's go. Just dissect them. Okay, cool. Love it. So our first one is by one of my favorite people ever. He's called Matt Haig. I'm sure you know. In fact, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's the one who said about rock bottom being the perfect foundation to build. Which much to build, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is another one of his, but it is the best of life exists beyond everything we are meant to feel bad about lacking. I'll Ooh. say it again because it, it takes a while to sink in, but mm. the best of life exists beyond everything we are meant to feel bad about lacking. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, that comes back to the great song, Best Things in Life are Free, you know. Mm-hmm. We're, we're always, if we're taking things for granted, you, you can't take things for granted and practice gratitude at the same time. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. I agree with that. It really resonated because I think we do continuously feel bad about the things that we don't have in terms of the toned stomach, the disposable income, you know, we're all looking for this purpose or meaning. And I think once you let go of all those exterior values and materialistic things, you do realize just how great life is. As you said, you know, even in that moment, you're like, I'm grateful for my parents and my siblings and my, you know, and it's so true. We just let go of everything that we're supposed to feel something for, which, which really doesn't matter. No, I mean, this 750 million quid didn't save David Bowie. Mm. So, you know, Tyson Fury did an interview a few months ago and he just said, we're all just borrowing stuff. And I just thought that was so simple and yet so profound. Everything, we're borrowing the house, the watch, the car, but legacy, that'll be left forever. Yeah, love that. Okay, so our next one is... um, being in a relationship in your 20s is like playing a game of blackjack, continuously deciding whether to stick or twist until one of you goes bust. Mm. <laughs> I would say that's a very callous and sad way to view the world, um, personally. Um, I understand the, the the fun in it and the premise behind it. And obviously there's so many dashed relationships that you think are going to make the grade. But um, I know why our relationship failed. So um, if it was to go, obviously, again, hindsight and all that sort of stuff. But that relationship 100% would still be going if um, if we knew how to process those emotions correctly. So, yeah, I, I, I would disagree with that one wholeheartedly. Mm. Yeah, I I would I would agree. I think that I mean, continues deciding whether to stick or twist until one of you goes bust. Normally, in a game of blackjack, one of you also sticks and wins. Mm. So I guess it doesn't really work, does it? Because no. <laughs> it's a two man game. It's not. <laughs> it's not one v the other. Yeah, I, I understand the, the quirky message behind it, but mm. for me, that's quite a that's quite a uh, negative way, way to look to at be. life. Very mm. true. Very true. Um, so this final one is um, in an article in the Atlantic and the quote is, we are growing into ourselves across a whole lifetime, not just throughout one decade. Let's all retire the idea of our twenties as a hashtag best life and just strive for a good one. Yeah. I, I like, I liked it until the strive for the good one thing. Um, mm. Only because I never want to, 
I always want to be grateful for what I have, but I never want to sell. I never want to just, you know, go, this is me now. Not because um, I'll never be content. I just always want to, you know, like I said earlier, that, that progress equals happiness. So even if it's just by that much, I want to be better than yesterday. But at the mm. same time, I'm just just good the way I am right now as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the continuous battle, isn't it? It's being okay with and 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 content with the present while striving for something in the future. Like, I don't understand how anyone gets that balance right. To be honest, I, do, I definitely yeah. don't. Yeah, it's um, for, for me. It's you know, it's very much a case of I'm I'm always in the present now. Where right now we're sitting on a on a podcast having a nice chat that's as far as my thinking goes because whenever mm. it deters away to, Oh, but that client thing and Oh, but they're not, it's just like back to mm. now. So I'm very grateful for what I have right now, but I always also want to just be, like I said, improved by that little bit. So it doesn't, I think if you've got a healthy relationship with it, that's great. You know, because there's an old phrase that there's nothing worse than crying in your Ferrari. <laughs> that's the ultimate failure you know mm. is um, you know Tony Robbins says it best with success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure so we want to make sure that we're honing down on what exactly it is what our blueprint for life is if your blueprint for life is I'm successful when I'm tucking my kids into bed at night and picking them up from school and I'm going to be the best dad ever because my dad was never around and then you've been the managing director of a fortune 500 company which requires you to sleep away from home 20 nights out of 30 a month. You're going to be miserable in your mansion when you come back and your kids are mm. asleep. So, you know, you have to really weigh up what is really important to you. And self-awareness is essential because some people now, unfortunately think earning 60 K is not enough. I've got to go out and get 600 K and they try everything they possibly can. And they always think they're a failure, even though they've got an incredible house with two beautiful kids and a, ranger over in the front garden you know it, mm. because they always felt like but well, that bit more but well, that bit more because i decided blueprints can shift things can change so you have to figure out self-important you know self-realization what do i actually care about not what do i think i should or what joe blogs from school said what do i want and how am i going to achieve it that's the ultimate success for me Amazing. Thanks so much, Adam. What a perfect note to end on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>